0: How many know that uh, there are consequences to compromise? And sometimes those consequences can be absolutely dire. And there are temptations Daily to compromise, aren't there? To cut corners. To maybe say, Well, I can I can get this close. I can just kinda slide by over here. It's difficult. It's difficult to live a godly and righteous life. It's very difficult. And the temptations, again, to compromise are all around us. They're there, seems like it, every place we turn. This morning, as we look back into the book of Genesis in chapter 34, we resume our travels with Jacob. We're going to see the latest episode in his life and where Jacob, in fact, does compromise. And that compromise will lead to a chain of events, a chain of evil. That is out, absolutely out of control. And initially, it seems innocuous. It seems fine. It all stems from where he decides to settle when he returns from Aram. These daily decisions that we make are critical. They determine the course of our next days, weeks, months, and years. We must be on our guard. We must be attentive. And it is a battle. It is a battle. And most of the time, the truth be known, we'd just rather be out of the battle, huh? I don't want to have to get up today. I don't want to have to engage these things. I don't want to have to deal with these things. So join me as we look back into the book of Genesis. In the last chapter where we left off, verse 18 of chapter 33, we saw Jacob, the summary statement that he had come from Padanaram Aram with uh, the engagement with Uncle Laban, you recall. He'd been there 20 years. And he yet still anticipated meeting his brother Esau, who he hadn't seen in 20 years. And the last time... He encountered Esau. Esau was threatening death to him. So God had delivered him from the hand of Laban, and now he was going to anticipate Esau. And God even gave him favor there, didn't he? Delivered him from the hand of Esau, and there was marvelous reconciliation there. But God had called Jacob to return to the land. God told him to return to the land. Where do you think when he came to the land that he should have come to? Where, what is the most logical place do you think that he should have come to when he returned to the land? Where? Bethel. Who said Bethel? You read it. Yeah. He should have returned to Bethel. You say, why? Why? because that's where he first encountered God as he was leaving, escaping for his life. That's where God promised to be with him. That is the very place where Jacob made a vow to God, set up an altar, poured oil on it, and said, this is the house of God. This is an awesome place. It would make sense, therefore, for him to return to Bethel. But let's see where he goes. Verse 18 of chapter 33, after Jacob came from Padanaram, he arrived safely. Somebody say hallelujah. He arrived safely. I bet you he was hallelujahing. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, encamped within the site of the cities. Now, what you need to know a couple of things about Shechem Shechem is on. A very prosperous trade route. It's situated very strategically. The city of Shechem would grow to be a very prosperous city. And it would make sense in the ancient East, if you knew about this city and you were going to dwell in the land, that you would dwell either in or near Shechem. You would benefit. You would prosper. Now he was already a relatively wealthy man. God had blessed him already. Shechem was approximately one day's journey short of Bethel. If I had just gone one more day. If I would just persevered one more day. If I had just hung on a little bit longer. Does that ring a familiar note to anybody? Now, I want to submit to you, we should live our life without regrets... Difficult as a fallen human being, but nonetheless, that's a goal. Live your life without regrets. But learn from your mistakes. Is there a difference there? So Shechem was one day's journey short of Bethel. I submit to you that he should have gone, upon his return to the land, he should have gone right to Bethel. He had yet to repay his vows to God. Now, Jacob is growing. He's maturing. God is working in his life. He's not the man when he comes back to the land. He's not the same man that he was when he left. But he still yet has to grow. Can anybody relate to that? I'm not what I was, but I'm not what I ought to be. I'm still growing. God's still at work in me. Somebody say hallelujah. So Shechem would offer, really, it would offer to Jacob... The attraction of compromise. This is a key thing for us. The attraction of compromise. Now it begins in verse 1 of chapter 34. He's camped outside of Shechem. He's not going to go all the way into the city, but but merely on the outside. He's going to flirt with the city. Now his daughter Dinah, we're told, the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land, and when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields uh, working with his livestock, and so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they had heard what had happened, and they were filled with grief and fury, because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. And then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. And then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree uh, to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and we'll go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and to his son Shechem. The young man, who was most honored of all of his father's household, lost no time in doing what they had said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamer and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let us live in our land and let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people, only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? So let us give consent to them, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain. Hmm. Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamer and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute. Now on the surface of it, you read that account, and you can understand how the brothers would want to take revenge. They would want to avenge the violation of their sister. But let's look at the story a little more closely. This chapter, chapter 34, as I suggested to you earlier shows the cost of compromise. And that cost, in this instance, would be not only the rape of Dinah, but it would be the deception of the sons. And that deception would include blasphemy, because they would pervert God's purpose for circumcision. But it would also lead to a massacre, murder. This would be the chain of evil that would proceed. Logically, from Jacob's decision to, in effect, be open to partnering with the Canaanite peoples. Now Dinah, Dinah is probably about 15 years old right now. We're told that she went out to visit the women of the land. Now was this an innocent venture of a young girl? who was looking for female companionship. After all, she had grown up in a house with nothing but, what, 11 brothers. The record does not show that she had any sisters or any other girls born. So we can presume, I think safely so, that she was the only daughter. She was raised with all brothers. She had no girlfriends. And so she goes out to visit the women of the land. Interestingly, Josephus, the Jewish historian, comments on this, and he suggests that she goes out to take part in some of the feasts of the Shechemites. Whatever the reason, Dinah finds herself in the company of the Shechemite women. Now, if she's in the company of the Shechemite women, no doubt, also, she would come to the attention of the Shechemite young men. That's right. And it would not be long before she would come to the attention of, guess who? Prince Shechem. And that's exactly what happens. Unattached young women were considered fair game in these ancient Near Eastern cities. Promiscuity was not only common, it was indeed a very part of their religious practices. Wherever you have idolatry, you always have accompanying immorality. The Apostle Paul identifies this clearly uh, in Romans chapter 1. When he talks about God giving them over to uh, immoral practices of all, of all sorts. But before he indicates that, he says that they have forsaken, they've, they've left the one true God. And they worship created things idolatry always leads to immorality and so you have in the ancient Near East as well today. You have immoral practices because people are idolatrous. If you find yourself in the midst of immorality, it's because you're walking in unbelief, you're walking, in effect, in idolatry. And so this was common in the ancient Near East, this was a common practice. And indeed, uh, they had very, very organized religious systems, which included temple prostitutes and all manner of immoral practices. So it was only a matter of time until Diana was seduced by Shechem. Verse 2 says in the New uh, NIV, says, he took her and violated her. The New American Standard states it this way. He took her and lay with her by force. He raped her. He raped her. However, it appears this was not merely another case of routine conquest for him, for he fell in love with Dinah, and now he wanted to marry her. After he seduced her, he didn't cast her aside, but he tried to comfort her. He tried to assure her that he loved her and wanted to marry her. And it appears that he takes her into his own home, Because when we get to verse 26, after Simeon and Levi have slaughtered all the males, they go into Shechem's house, kill him, and take her from his house. So presumably, Shechem had taken her into his own home, even at this early date. Marriage was not as easily accomplished as a sexual adventure. People get married today, they have sex, and all of a sudden they think they should be married. Tragedy. But even in those days, even among the pagans, marriage had to be arranged by the parents. I still think that that's a marvelous way to go. (laughs) Difficult to get cooperation on that, though. (laughs) Who better than to arrange a marriage than the parents who are most interested in the welfare of those children, and you survey the available crop Marry well, right? Do we want our kids to marry well? Marry well. Marry someone of character. Marry someone with a good track record. Marry someone who's dependable and faithful, trustworthy, godly. So even in those days, even among the pagans, marriages were arranged. So verse 4, Shechem says to his father, get me this girl as my wife. Arrange the marriage. Put it together, even though I've defiled her. (laughs) Now, it's interesting to note that Hamor apparently thought nothing about the moral implications of what his son had done. He doesn't rebuke his son, nor did he apologize in any way to Jacob or to Dinah's brothers for what had happened to her. No comment whatsoever. For a young man to have sex with a young woman, even by force, was apparently such a common thing in those Canaanite towns that no one gave it a second thought. Sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? We have, we have young people today uh, engaged in sexual practices that are just incredible. Junior high, kids. It's recreation. No one gives it a second thought. And most parents are clueless. We live in the days akin to Sodom and Gomorrah, where everything goes. Now, word of what happened to Dinah reaches Jacob. But he decided not to do anything without first consulting Dinah's brothers who were still at work. I wonder if Jacob regretted at this juncture I wonder if he thought now I'm sorry that I settled so close to a place like Shechem where it would be so difficult not to have my children subjected to these temptations, to these traumas, to these bad influences. We can only wonder after this event had occurred if he'd regretted settling there. As parents... We have an incredible responsibility to train up our children the way they should go. We have a responsibility to teach them what it means to live a righteous life. We have a a, a responsibility to teach them the word of God. We have a responsibility to live our lives as examples before them. To prepare them. There are lots of wonderful experiences in this world, but there are lots of incredible challenges and traps awaiting our youngsters, aren't there? And there are far too few parents, Christian parents, who are not instructing their children, not teaching their children, not taking them. They teach them, they, 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 they lead the teaching of the kids to children's church or junior high or high school. Children's Church, Junior High, High School, Awanas, those kinds of groups, they are not responsible for training up our children. We are as the parents. Those other environments only serve as, as uh, uh, support systems. But so many parents just abandon their kids to these environments, expecting you, you teach them how to memorize Scripture. No, 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 parents, you teach your kids. You teach them the Word of God. You teach them. You tell them about how you're walking with God. You be truthful with them about your struggles. You teach them how to pray. You get on your knees with them. You lead them. And more particularly, the Father's the fathers, the fathers. This is a critical thing. Absolutely critical. God entrusts these kids to us. He gives them to us as a trust. He says, be a good steward over this life. Don't just delegate it to somebody else to teach and train. You do it. I gave them to you. What can you and I, as parents, do? What should we do to prepare and strengthen our own children against the influences, against the temptations, against the snares of this world? What should you do? But the question now, at this point, before Jacob, what, what should he do about the immediate situation? The horse has already left the barn. What to do now? And he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't have an answer. And before Jacob's sons come home, Hamor arrives, and he arrives with the proposal that Dinah be given as Shechem's wife. Along with the proposal, there's no word of apology there's no word of sympathy offered, nor any suggestion that his son be punished in any way for what he had done. He more merely proposes a marriage. And then Jacob's sons, having themselves heard about what had happened to their sister, news travels fast. Having themselves heard, they hurry home. Verse 7 says they were filled with grief. And fury. There's nothing like a tight-knit family and older brothers who are going to be protective of their younger sister. Can you imagine? Now Dinah, as I said earlier, as far as we know, was probably their only sister. And they had all been raised, though they had been raised in a polygamous household, multiple wives, All these children had been taught the sacredness of the marriage relation. Sex is for marriage, it's the cement that bonds the husband and wife together. It's the last culminating act in that bonding process of two people becoming one. They knew the sacredness of that marital relation. Jacob had not sought any other woman to be his wives, and his wives had always been faithful to him. They all knew of God's purpose to raise up a holy nation through this family. They knew what God had said, that they would be a holy nation, that they would inherit the land, that God had a special special purpose for them. And that the maintenance of their national integrity as a people, as a family, their maintenance of their national purity was essential to assure God's continued blessing on them. We must remain pure. We must remain holy. That can be said about us, isn't that true? If we're to be, continue to be a light, must we maintain lives of purity and holiness and righteousness? These brothers were angry, furious, not only for Dinah's sake, I'm going to suggest. Not only for Dinah's sake, but because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing. Notice this. Had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. They used the name Israel. There's significance to this because they understand this national destiny. They understand what God has set forth. This ought not to be done within the context of the nation of Israel. They had a substantial comprehension, a substantial understanding and recognition of the deeper values that God had called them to and the implications of this event that had happened to Dinah. It wasn't just that they were... Mad because of Dinah, it had far-reaching implications in their minds. And their anger apparently had little effect on Hamer. He only continued to urge them to accept his proposition of marriage. And not only did he propose marriage between his son Shechem and Dinah, but then he broadened the offer by suggesting that they should, in general, intermarry together. Jacob's people and the people of Shechem. This would be a way this would be a way of assimilating Jacob and his family. This would be a way of them appropriating all of Jacob's wealth. Can you see Satan behind the scenes? What's he trying to do here? He's trying to derail, he's trying to to threaten God's plan of redemption. If he, can, if he can persuade Jacob as an expedient measure to intermarry with the, with the Shechemites, you have just lost the nation of Israel. You've just lost the hope of redemption. You've just lost the hope of Messiah. There they're again, they're, they're brought right to the brink of potential disaster because of Compromise. You don't know where that compromise is going to take you. We don't know how it's going to result in terms of the specifics. We just know that there's danger there. And there will lead to a chain of evil and a chain of events. All this is going to do is going to reveal to Jacob, an underscore for Jacob, that he should leave. Flee. Flee. Get out of there. This is no place for you, Jacob. No place for mixing with the peoples of this land. That's the proposition that's laid before him. Dinah and that thing is only the the substrate for it, or a greater evil. Now Shechem, who had apparently come with his father and had not spoken up to this point, Shechem steps forward. Now he he offers to pay Jacob and his sons any amount that they would want. Name your price for this girl. Though he obviously loved Dinah, and he was more interested in having her than in his father's concern for absorbing Jacob and his family, Shechem didn't seem to feel any pangs of conscience for what he had done to her or the terrible offense to the family. No way does he come and say, you know, I have sinned against you, I've sinned against your daughter, I've sinned against your sister, I humble myself, I prostrate myself, please forgive me, I was wrong. Nothing. Nothing. He and his father have a very matter-of-fact attitude. A very matter-of-fact attitude about this business And I would suggest that this would only serve to further infuriate Dinah's brothers. I mean, think about it. They were making a monetary offer for their sister just as though she were nothing more than a prostitute whose body could be purchased for the asking. In fact, that's what they say in the last verse of the chapter. Now from this point on, Jacob's sons step forward and they do all the talking with Hamer. For some reason, Jacob abdicates his leadership role. I want to suggest that he should have prevented his sons from doing this. He should have prevented his sons from deceiving Hamor and Shechem. He should have taken his family and he should have moved to Bethel. For some reason, Jacob backs off. He's the papa. What happens when papa doesn't pop? There's a vacuum. And someone steps in the vacuum. Who's going to step in the vacuum typically? Mom. But here it's his son's. His sons step up in their own immaturity. And they're going to plot revenge. He could have stopped the cycle of violence right there. Come on, Dad, step in there. Rise to the task. Come on, Dad. Too many men today, far too many men today, are retreating from their responsibilities as men, as husbands, as fathers, as leaders. Too many men. Too many men intimidated by women. Too many men intimidated by their wives. Too many men give in to the whinings and the whimperings of their children. It's easier to retreat. It's easier to hide. Easier. Easier. To compromise, easier to give in. Where are the men? God has assigned us leadership. He's assigned to us the responsibility to take the initiative with our families. The fathers, the fathers. And here we have an example of a father who should know better, and for whatever reason, he does not take his role of leadership. It is not easy to be a leader. It is not easy to stand there and stand on principle when everybody says, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But nonetheless, you must do it. Your kids whine and whimper and say, well, blah, 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 blah. you say, no. What part of no don't you understand? The end or the oh? Dear, I love you, but we're not going there. I'll pray with you. We'll see God about this, but I'm making the decision. And I expect you to support me. Period. Period. Ooh, man, I wouldn't like to live in his house. Yes, you would. My wife has a blessed life, don't you, dear? Yes, dear. So Jacob's sons, presumably Simeon and Levi, Dinah's full brothers, by the way, Reuben is the oldest, Simeon and Levi, and then Judah. So her two older brothers, full brothers, devise a plan, a scheme, to get revenge. And that revenge will involve blasphemy as well as deception and murder. And their plan was justified in their own minds because of what they considered to be intolerable sin, not only against their sister, but against their name, Israel. They can justify it. Not content to take vengeance on Shechem only. They felt that in a sense the whole city was guilty and the whole city de- deserved judgment. Much as Sodom and Gomorrah corporately deserved the judgment of God as in the days of their great-grandfather Abraham. Why the whole city? Because in their mind, apparently nobody in the city protested what Shechem did to their sister. No one in the city sought to defend her or protect her. In fact, probably the young men in the city may have been proud of Shechem's conquest of this young foreign girl. In fact, they may have done the same things themselves if they had been able But Shechem, as their prince, had first priority, and they indeed may have derived some kind of vicarious pleasure from his sexual exploits. So you can understand very possibly how Jacob's sons would see that the whole city was deserving of judgment. But not content, notice this, Not content to leave the city's judgment, if indeed it deserved judgment. Not content to leave that judgment in the hands of who? God. As in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, Simeon and Levi determined to take matters into their own hands. Question. Is there ever a good reason to take revenge? to get even. Why do we do it then? Not only are we sinful, we're foolish. You're in the flesh. You're not walking in the Spirit. You're not trusting God. You're operating in unbelief. When you feel like you must get even, there is never, never, For you and I, as believers, never a justification for getting even. We're instructed in Paul's letter to the Romans, as far as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with all. We are not to take revenge. Although sometimes you say, just let me hit him once, just once. No, not even once. We're not to take revenge. It's not ours to get even. Leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge. He says, I will repay. On the contrary, our part is to, if our enemy or offender is hungry or thirsty, our part is to meet that need. The Holy Spirit says that in doing so, we will heap burning coals on that person's head. Coals of conviction. Regret. Kill them with kindness. No revenge. No revenge. It's not an option for you and I. You don't have to get even with your husband or your wife. Teach your kids you don't have to get even with the kids on the playground. Leave room for God's wrath. You be at peace. So pretending now, pretending to go along with Hamer's proposition that there would be a a general intermarriage between the two peoples, they said that there's only one problem, and the problem is a religious problem. It was their religious conviction that every male in their nation should be circumcised. This presents a problem. Now, if they were to be one people, then the Shechemites themselves would need to be circumcised. Now, let me suggest, just going through a ritual or simply saying a prayer does not mean that a change has been made. How many know what I'm talking about? Lots of people walk an aisle, say a prayer, go through a ritual, even get baptized. But that's no genuine evidence of a changed life. What's the evidence of a changed life? A changed life! Duh. If you go back to chapter 17 in the book of Genesis, when God be- in- initiates this rite of circumcision amongst his people, it was to be a sign. It was invested with special meaning. It was to be a sign of the unity of the covenant people and their separation from the peoples around them. It was a mark in their flesh that said to them, you're different. You're different, and you don't intermingle with the peoples around you. You don't absorb into them, and you don't fellowship with them. And circumcision was not limited to Abraham's descendants directly, but was given as a sign also of ones joining the hope of God's promises to Abraham. So if you were a Gentile, and you were not a direct descendant of Abraham, and you were a Gentile, and you wanted to align with God's people, and you wanted to come under Abraham's blessing, then you, if you were male, you also were circumcised. A sign that you joined God's people. You joined Abraham's offspring. But in the way Jacob's sons carried out the request that these Canaanites be circumcised, it was a reversal of God's intention. It was an absolute reversal. You see how? They offered circumcision as a means for the two families to become one people. It was just a ruse. It was a blasphemous ruse. And if it indeed were to be carried out, the Canaanites were not joining the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham were joining the Canaanites. Just the opposite of what God's intention was. They blaspheme. Not only did they deceive, they blaspheme. Now, there were other nations that did practice the rite of circumcision in the ancient Near East. It was not something totally unique to the Israelites. God invested with new meaning. So therefore, when, when the Jacob's sons make this proposal to Hamor and Shechem, it's not an offensive thing. It's not something unknown to them. They know about the practice of circumcision. They, they themselves didn't practice it, but it wasn't offensive. It didn't put them off. They knew there was something that people did. So Hamor then goes to all the men in the city gates, and he lays out this whole plan to them. And he stresses especially that they would be able to absorb Jacob and his family and all of his wealth. This was a significant inducement to the people of the city, to the men of the city. And they were easily persuaded by this inducement. We're going to get richer, and all we have to do is whack off a little skin. Not a bad trade, so they thought. And Shechem, the prince, his own example further encouraged them. In fact, he was the first one to go get this done. He did it immediately because he was so anxious to get Dinah. And he is described as the most honored of all of his father's household, so he was the example. All the men would easily follow his lead. Verse 24, So they all agreed, and they were circumcised. Now Simeon and Levi, they know the effects of circumcision. They know that it is a painful thing and they know that it can be crippling, especially on the third day when the pain is the most intense. And it was on that day, the third day, because, believe me, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to work that day. You don't want to do much of anything. You just want to recover. So on the third day, Simeon and Levi... Murder all of the men of the city of Shechem. They kill them all. They come to Shechem's house. They kill Shechem. And this is when they take Dinah and take her back home. Verse 30 tells us after this appalling massacre, and presumably all the other sons of Jacob had come upon this massacre, and they spoil the city, take off all, they loot. Take the women and children, presumably as slaves. Verse 30 tells us, after all this has happened, Jacob confronts his sons. He is appalled at what they have done. I suspect that Jacob, in his own mind, had tried to live peacefully with the Shechemites. I suspect that he hoped, possibly, that his altar that he had built The testimony of his own life, the testimony of his family, would speak to these Shechemite people, and they would too want to follow Jehovah. Is that a logical assumption we can make, do you think? Sure, we want our lives to be testimonies, right? But sometimes, in wanting our lives to be testimonies, we can easily compromise. But now, whatever testimony his family might have had was absolutely shattered, it was gone, it was no more. And instead of being a witness for the truth, instead of witness being a witness for the love of God, their name would become associated with deception and with cruelty. Instead of being a pleasant aroma, they would be a stink in the land. They would be a stench. Their name would be just a, a, an absolute stench. Jacob and his whole family, to all the other people in the land and Jacob said, when the news of this treachery travels through the land to all the other peoples, all the other tribes, all the other nations, it wouldn't be long before they would converge on Jacob, converge on his household, and destroy them. Jacob noticed this. Jacob doesn't rebuke his sons for the sin that they committed. He rebukes them only for giving him a bad name and putting him in potential danger. He doesn't say, what you have done was evil. He says, now you give me a bad name. And now we're in danger. How human. How human. How easy it is to compromise. How easy it is to want to please people and want people to like you. And so in doing, we, we don't stand for what's right and true. We don't stand for what's right because of what people will think about us. Oh, you're one of them. You're one of those fundamentals, fundamentalists. You're one of those Christian people, one of those born-again's. Yes, I am! Oh, not, oh yeah. (laughs) We have nothing to be apologetic for. We have nothing to be apologetic for. You stand for the truth, guess what? People are going to hate you. We can't stand that though. Most of us are people pleasers. For most of us, if the truth be known, the fear of man is stronger than the fear of God. We won't speak up. We won't stand up. We won't live for what's right. It is a wonderful thing to stand for the truth. Do you know why it's such a wonderful thing to stand for the truth? Because when you stand for the truth, you don't have to compromise, you're free. You're free. Jacob's complaint to his sons is silenced. It's silenced by one question from them. The very last verse, verse 31. One question silences Jacob's complaints. He complained about what they had done, but they say in effect, but Father, what did you do? Father, what did you do? Had you forgotten that Dinah had been raped by this very prince of the city? And to add insult to injury, his father Hamor had actually sought to purchase Dinah as though she was nothing more than a prostitute. Father, have you forgotten that? What did you do? And then they dared to propose to unite with us in one mixed group, which would inevitably, Father, if you haven't forgotten, would have inevitably destroyed us and our high calling. Was this of no concern to you, Father Jacob? If you had known of a better way of dealing with this whole problem, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? Where was Israel? Where was Israel? This prince who had wrestled with God and had prevailed, who had power with God, where was Israel when action was needed? Where are you, O man of God? Where are you, O man of God? Jacob could say nothing in reply. He could say nothing in reply. He had indeed failed, and he knew it. And now he is obviously in need, desperate need, of revival of his own soul and he is in need of a fresh word of guidance from the Lord he is speechless he sees nothing but devastation and disaster in front of him he can say nothing he needs God's help have you failed do you see disaster as a result of your compromise Do you need a revival of your soul? Do you need a fresh word from God? The next chapter, God will speak to him, not to condemn him, not to beat him up, but to tell him go to Bethel. Go to Bethel and build an altar. Return to me. Get your perspective back. Woo! You read the next chapter and you see God's grace to Jacob. Beloved, if you in, in, in some way like Jacob have failed, if you're here today and you have a, 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 a genuine need for renewal and revival of your soul, if you're soul-weary if you need a fresh word from God, guess what? We get to go to Bethel. Our Bethel this morning is the communion table. The communion table where we once again encounter the truth of God, the word of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the power of God. Compromise. Compromise. It's always there, isn't it? It's always their beckoning. And sometimes we blindly, foolishly walk right into it. And there are consequences. But beloved, we are not without hope. We have a God who is greater than all of our failures. Where our sin is great, His grace is greater. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the confidence we have. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are faithful, merciful, compassionate, forgiving to thousands of generations. Lord, draw us to you this morning. We ask to know know in a very, very real, powerful way your grace. Revive our souls, O God. Speak to our hearts. Open our eyes to your word and reveal to us, Lord, your truth. Direct our path. We come to you this morning humbly. We come to you in our weakness. We come to you very simply, Lord, humbly. We ask your blessing that we might worship you.